All right, well, welcome again. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. We are going to be looking at the proclamation of the heavenly host to the shepherds this morning. It's probably one of the most famous passages uh, of the Christmas story when the angels announce to the shepherds uh, that the Messiah has been born. So if you have your Bible, uh, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It's what we're going to read this morning. If not, it's going to be on the screen. It says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, most of us either have or know someone in our family who has a really great story. One of those stories when the entire family gets together, we retell it, and when it's retold, for the most part, each time it's told, it brings back the same either bellyaching laughter or mystery or fondness of memory when the first time that we heard it. Now, can you imagine these shepherds in their old age, when the family comes together, they have the grandkids on the lap, and they say, tell us, tell us again the story of that night. What did they say? What did they look like? What was the song? What were the lyrics again? I mean, can you imagine just reliving this scene? The grandkids asking, now when you say heavenly host, you mean an angel army, right? How many were there? Did it light up the sky? Did anybody else see? Now most of us, I'd imagine, have prayed for some sort of divine revelation like this in our lives. 
for the Lord or for the angel to show up and just speak incredibly clearly for us. I mean, how many times have we prayed, Lord, just give me a sign. Just tell me what to do next and I'll do it or how to fix this or what I should do about this or that. However, I imagine that experience more terrifying than we give it credit for. Not because a heavenly host shows up, while that would be absolutely terrifying to see that, but because divine revelation is a hard gift to receive. Because it requires that you give up everything to receive it. It requires that you change your reality and your your perspective. The story of Christmas is surrounded by this divine revelation about the Messiah who has come, this Messiah who has brought peace, what he's coming to do and what our response should be. You see, like the shepherds, this divine revelation causes them to leave their flocks and go find a baby. Or like Jesus is going to say later in one of his parables, this divine revelation, this message of the gospel is like finding a treasure in a field and selling everything that you have so you can go and buy this field. This revelation changes our reality. So today, here's our goal. This is what we're going to see through this gospel of peace, that knowing Jesus is a deeply personal and transformative experience. Knowing Jesus is a deeply personal and transformative experience. We can't just have it out here in the periphery. it, It transforms us. It's personal Living as a Jesus follower today means seeing our own story as an embodied expression of Jesus' story. Or as Jesus will say, you pick up your cross and you follow me. So today we're going to ask these three questions. What is peace? How do I get peace? And how do we live in peace? Because the proclamation from the heavenly host is peace on earth. But if we look at the world around us, we be hard to find where peace is existent as a universal truth for all of us. So let's ask this question first. What is peace? Is it the absence of conflict at times? The Bible answers it in these ways. The absence of conflict, having all of your flock is a peaceful situation. Being well is peace. Being complete or experiencing restoration is peace. Now in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom is used in all of these examples to describe peace. For example, in Job 5, 24, he says this, that you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Other translation use the word secure for shalom or even safe to interpret shalom. You shall know your tent is safe or secure, but the word there is peace. Shalom can refer to a person's well-being, like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, and he asks about their shalom. It says in 1 Samuel 17, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. How was your shalom? The Bible Project says this about shalom. They give this definition. The core idea is that life is a complex full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. We see in the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring 
shalom. And when rival kings, kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they just stop fighting. It means that they start working together for another's benefit. So for example, we all have this universal way of speaking of shalom. If I go and borrow your truck and say, I got to drive to LeCount to go pick something up. Now, do I return your truck with half a tank left in it when it was, when I got it with a full tank? No. I fill it back up because I restore what was given to me. That is to bring peace or shalom to this situation, which makes this, Christian, or this Christmas revelation difficult because it tells me who I am and what I am not. It tells me that I am not complete. Christmas is a story that tells me I am not whole, that I have not been restored. The incarnation of Jesus pointedly preaches our inescapable need for radical personal and moral need to be rescued. You see, one of the dark qualities of sin is that we don't recognize as much as we should our unwillingness. We're unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense. We're unwilling maybe to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. Unwilling to accept or admit the fault that I have is contributing to the broken rhythms or habits of my family. Unwilling to say no to our wrong thoughts or desires, unwilling to serve or give generously, unwilling to admit that we are wrong. The revelation of the Messiah tells us our need for a savior, and at times, that's a hard gift to receive because it requires change from me. It requires me look inside myself and see that I am broken, that I am separated from God, that I am unable to do anything, and I stand under his judgment. If you flip back to Luke chapter one, Zechariah says this about the coming Messiah, and starting in verse uh, 76. He says this about his son and this about the coming Messiah. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. We are separated from God and able to do anything about it. And what sin does is it makes us delusional. It makes us think that we're okay. It makes us think that I can fix this or everything's not as bad as it seems. But the Christmas story tells us not that we're just separated from God, but we're ultimately under his judgment. But the beautiful thing about the Christmas story is that God has made a way through his son. The delusion of sin is, I think, not bound up better than in Ephesians 2, where it says this, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. When we think of peace, our definitions won't suffice to simply say we want peace of mind, or it's a peaceful house when the house is quiet, or it's peace in the church when there is no conflict. Are all of those things peaceful? Absolutely they are. But true peace, true shalom is much deeper. What is peace? What does it mean to bring shalom? It means to make whole or restore. And this is the essence of the Christmas message. Not that there will just be universal peace now. If you go to Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to stand in front of a crowd and say something to the extent of, I'm paraphrasing, what do you think I, do? I came here for, to bring peace 
No. I have come to divide brother against brother, father against son, because the message of Christmas is a radical one. It requires our understanding and our need for a Savior and that the Messiah is Jesus. And at times, that message divides. So how do we get peace? How do we achieve this peace? Zacharias prays after he has gone from being mute to now being able to speak. This is the first thing he says. We're jumping ahead a few verses in chapter 1. Starting in verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now this phrase, he has raised up a horn of salvation. This is a weird phrase, but it connects all the way back to Psalm 148. And to raise up the horn of salvation is like a bull that raises up his horn in victory. How is Jesus raised up in victory to secure our salvation? It's on the cross. The horn of our salvation is seen as Jesus is raised up on the cross for us. Simeon's praise later when Jesus is brought to the temple to be dedicated. It says this in chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was, a righteous, who was righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace and wholeness restored. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people in Israel. Notice how everything that they have said, they are either talking about an unborn child or a newly born child. How do we get this peace? What a truly magnificent thing for us to ponder this Christmas is that the Lord became flesh. He became vulnerable. Think about it this way. There was a moment in time when the presence of God felt like the unease of morning sickness to Mary. Scriptures say that the child in the mother's womb is wonderfully and fearfully made, and Jesus, becoming human, knit together in a teenage Middle Eastern woman, was wonderfully and fearfully made. The God of the universe, entrusting himself to a woman for nourishment, rest, energy, and protection. What does this say about God? He was willing, he is willing to be vulnerable for us. Willing to be attached to a placenta for nourishment and life to its own creation, willing to wait and grow in the human womb. So how do we get this peace? You don't achieve it. You don't earn it. You simply receive it. Hebrews chapter two says, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's the wonderful news of the gospel 
And we repeat this often. You could probably recite it very quickly at the snap of a finger. But it's something worth us pondering. That Jesus Christ, in place of us, tasted death for everyone. It says in verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Remember what we said about ourselves, one of the the delusional effects of sin is that we are often unwilling, we often have blind spots, we are often unwilling to give up our sin, we're often unwilling to confess our sin, but what the Christmas story tells us about Jesus is not that he's unwilling, but that he's willing. It shows us that Jesus knew he not only had to come and preach the gospel of peace, but the gospel of sacrifice. For Jesus to achieve this peace, he had to preach the gospel of sacrifice. But not only did he have to preach the gospel of sacrifice, he had to become the sacrifice. And he was completely willing to do so. The Christmas story shows us of a willing savior born to an unwilling people. He was willing to take on flesh with all of its frailty, willing to endure birth without the resources of medical attention among animals willing to expose himself to the hardships of life, willing to serve when he deserved to be served, willing to be misunderstood, mistreated, rejected, and endure all types of injustice, willing to suffer public mockery, endure torture, and suffer the Father's rejection. Jesus was willing to die. Jesus is willing to rise again and to be our advocate, willing to intercede daily on our behalf. Jesus is willing The birth of the Messiah tells us that Jesus is willing then, but that he also is willing still today. He's willing to intercede on your behalf. What is it that Jesus will not do for you? What the birth of Jesus tells us, that he's willing then and he's willing now, and that is true peace, because that means we are reconciled with God. Advent is telling us of the willingness of Jesus and that he guarantees our peace today. Your worst day or your best day, he is willing. He's willing to be patient. He's willing to be patient with you. The Christmas story hinges on one thing, the eternal willingness of Jesus to bring us peace. But this is somewhat contradictory in our own minds because this piece of Christmas, for so many of us, Christmas is not peace. Christmas, for so many of us, is the most difficult time of year. Christmas is going, for some, Christmas is going to be more painful than ever. We've lost moms, dads, sons, daughters. The oddities of family and the mixed bag that comes with it are on full display as we all gather in one cramped room to try and celebrate Christmas. For some of us, Christmas intends to bring joy, but it reminds us of pain. Christmas however, calls us to see the entire life of Jesus from his birth to his coming again. Remember, what our our key theme to see today is that knowing Jesus is a deeply personal and transformative experience. Living as a Jesus follower means seeing your own story as an embodied expression of Jesus' story. So we have seen what is peace. Peace is being made complete or to be restored. How do we get peace? It's through Jesus coming and dying on our behalf. But how do we live in peace? What is a practical way for us to live in this peace? Paul says this 
about peace. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, what is the opposite of peace? The opposite of peace is anxiety or anxiousness or worry. But Paul tells us to live in peace is to not be anxious about everything, but to be active. How? With prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. Now, we can read this passage the wrong way. We can read it in a way that says, I'm anxious a lot about a lot of things, finances, jobs, stress, economy, and what I need to do is pray and let God know, and when he gives me these things, I will have peace. That's the wrong way to think about it. That I have a problem, I'll pray for it, God will fix it, and then I'll have peace. But the problem with that is that we, we put God on the line. We put him on the hook for our own experience of peace or what we think is true peace. I mean, how many of us have left a job or situation thinking that old one was terrible, I just need a fresh start, and I'll be satisfied. You get a new job, and then 10 months later, it's the same thing. Same anxiety, different name. Same pressure, different place. Or are you living in one place and think, I need a new place, Man, something bigger, more bedrooms, nicer yard, quieter neighborhood. And when you get there, 10 months, it's the same anxiety, different creeks, breaks, and problems. Similar roof, just a more expensive mortgage. It doesn't bring true peace or completeness. Peace doesn't come from getting what we want. Whatever it is that we are dissatisfied with, whatever gives us problems, whatever frustrates us, getting it doesn't give us lasting peace Peace doesn't come from getting what we want. It comes from getting what we need. And this is the message of Christmas. We needed God to come down and be like us in every way, yet live without sin so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for us. What does Paul tell us about getting peace this way? He says that we aren't, if we're living in anxiety, we aren't thinking. And I don't mean like the, the country word of saying thinking. We're not thinking about it. That's not it. We're not living in thanksgiving. There was the time when I was in the seventh or eighth grade English class, and I had to give all the, the tenses of think, and I wrote down think, thank, thunk. That's wrong. <laughs> That's not it. It's not that we're not thanking. It's not that we're not thinking. We're not having a life of thanksgiving. Here's what Paul says. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is not the first or the last time that we're gonna get this instruction from Paul. In fact, he is going to elevate the call to giving thanks. He says this in 1 Thessalonians. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else's needs. Doesn't that sound like the definition of peace that we have just read? That we don't return wrong from wrong, but we restore, we make whole. He says this in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Which circumstances do we give thanks in? All of them. When the sickness doesn't get better, we give thanks in all circumstances. When Christmas reminds us what we have lost in loved ones or family members, we give thanks in all circumstances. When relationships break down, misaligned, misconstrued, 
We give thanks in all circumstances. Why? What does thanksgiving do? It produces within us a humility that we serve one who deserves thanks in all circumstances. I've shared a bunch of stories uh, from Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, she was a prisoner of war in World War II. But before she was a prisoner of war, uh, she tells a story of her Aunt Jan. She says this, Corey's Aunt Jan could, at times, could seem to be a bit pessimistic, but that didn't stop her from doing extraordinary work. During the war, she was one of the first to start soldier centers that would provide aid to men fighting in the war. She was heavily involved in raising funds, starting clubs that would help in this effort. She went around speaking and writing to promote the need for these centers. She was a woman that saw a need and took the initiative to do something about it. In those days, in the late 1920s, uh, diabetes was a death sentence, and it was upon hearing that news one day that Jan threw herself in a room in a bit of despair. Not to be sidelined, quickly though, she turned all her, of her efforts into what she could do from home. If anyone could beat diabetes, she thought it would be her. Weekly tests had to be done to check her blood sugar. Corey would administer these tests in the kitchen. It was a bit of a homemade chemistry lab every week to get the results while Aunt Jan would wait in the other room. For months, this went on, and the results came back fine until one day they didn't. The story picks up this way. Corey's father saying, we will tell her together, though I will speak the necessary words, and perhaps with his face brightening, she will take heart from all she has accomplished. She puts great store on her accomplishment, Jan does, And who knows but that she is right. The little procession filed up the steps to Aunt Jan's room. Come in, she called to Father's knock and added as she always does, close the door behind you before I catch the death of my drafts. She was sitting at a round mahogany table working on yet another appeal for the soldier's center. As she saw the number of people entering the room, she laid down her pen. She looked from face to another until she came to mine and gave a little gasp of comprehension. It was Friday morning, and I had not yet come up with the results of the test. My dear sister-in-law, Father began gently, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jan's, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with full hands. All your clubs, Aunt Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumbled. Aunt Jan put her face over her eyes and began to weep. Empty, empty, she choked at last through her tears. How can we bring God anything? What does he care about our little tricks and trinkets? And then we all listened in disbelief as she lowered her hands, and with tears still coursing down her face, she whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and all that we need in life or death is to be sure of this. What was she doing in that moment, in that moment of despair? She was thanking. She put her mind on her Savior, and it brought her peace. Friend, this is what we do this Christmas season. We, we turn our thinking into thinking. We think about what Christ, what God has done in Christ Jesus. 
We think about these things. Paul tells us to think on these things, whatever is true. First Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friend, that's you. That's me. This is what we think on. We think on whatever is true, that this Christmas season, no matter our hurt, our pain, our depression, that's all very real. But Christ came to restore that. And one day, he's going to make all things new. He's going to come back again. You see, we live in this second Advent season where we are waiting for Christ to restore all things. And until then, we think on it, whatever is true, and we thank him until we see him face to face. There's this poem that called The Jesus I Know. It says, the Jesus I know chose a woman, an abuse victim, a foreigner, lonely, tired, defensive, to be the first person to so clearly hear his true identity as the Messiah in a one-on-one intimate conversation over a drink of water. This morning, whatever sin has deluded you to be unwilling to show or confess or be exposed to, know this, Jesus sees it all. He knows it all. He knows the dark, wicked vileness of your heart. But the story of Christmas is that he is willing to come to us. He does not tarry. He comes with full force, willing to save us, willing to be born of a woman, to be exposed to all of the frailty of life, to suffer the death that we deserve, so that he might make many sons and daughters. How do you receive this peace? You accept it, what Jesus has freely given us. It cost him his life, but he freely gives it to us. So this Christmas season, I don't know what is, I got you in a bind. (laughs) What's got you all knotted up? I do know one thing, it's an incredibly stressful time. All the Christmas programs, all the present buying, all of the traveling, all of everything that just overwhelms us. When we get done with Christmas, it's oftentimes where we need a break from Christmas because of all of the hustle and bustle it provides. But don't go through this Christmas season without thinking and without thinking, without remembering and without praising. For the Lord has come to save us from our sin and to bring peace, wholeness, and restoration to the Father. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, that this Christmas season that we, we reflect and we remember, Father, that we wait. We wait for you. Father, that we long for you to come back. So Jesus, I I pray that whatever is represented in this room with pain and suffering, depression and anxiety, Father, I pray that this Christmas be a Christmas where we can experience true peace by thinking and thanking you, our Savior. Father, that we realize that this is an active exercise to bring ourselves into this mindset of peace because you have restored us to the Father. You have made a way, and you are making all things new. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name we pray all of these things.
It's in your name we lay down all of our anxiety. It's in your name we trust in true peace alone. Amen.